DiscerningHearts.com presents Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. Deacon Gutierrez studied theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville and at the Angelicum in Rome. He holds a master's degree in theology from the University of Dallas. He has worked for the church in various capacities, including as a teacher and administrator, and is currently on the faculty of the School of Faith. His expertise includes Catholic social teaching, and his writings on the subject have appeared in several national Catholic newspapers and periodicals. He's the author of The Urging of Christ's Love, The Saints, and The Social Teaching of the Catholic Church. Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Welcome back, Omar. Thanks, Chris. Good to be back. We're discussing Chapter 4, found in the compendium of the social doctrine of the Church. We now look at the area of subsidiarity. We've talked about it before, Mm. but it is so important that we address this and have a clear understanding because it really is the, the communal aspect of the Christian life. Yeah, the, the principle of subsidiarity, which the compendium says is one of the oldest principles. Sometimes it's it's hard for us to remember where some of this stuff is coming from. The social teaching, you know, started with Pope Leo the Thirteenth as a response to certainly in the Industrial Revolution and the kind of unbridled capitalism that was that was hurting the common man and the worker. But it was also explicitly a response to socialism and communism. Uh, pope Pius XI and Pope John XXIII and certainly Pope John Paul II, they all struggled with and dealt with communism and socialism and dangers of that kind of materialistic approach to questions of justice. So the principle of subsidiarity is kind of a, a, a part of the answer to socialism, part of the answer that the church puts forward as a way to avoid the dangers, the pitfalls of socialistic thinking. So what is it? The principle of subsidiarity argues societal problems, societal norms, societal issues are best handled at the appropriate level, which may oftentimes be the, the lowest level of authority. So, so a problem of the family or simply the family structure is best handled by the family, right? And mm-hmm. not necessarily by the state coming in and taking that responsibility, the federal government or the international community coming in. It's best handled closest to the problem or issue as possible. And the reasons for that include the closer you get to the person at the center of the problem, the more likely you are to love that person instead of seeing that person as a statistic or as a means or as as just one other cog in the wheel. So the companion will say, this about the principle of subsidiarity, that it's among the most constant and characteristic directives of the Church's social doctrine, and it's been present since the first great social encyclical, which was Rerum Novarum. In 186, it says, the necessity of defending and promoting the original expressions of social life is emphasized by the Church in the encyclical Quadragesimo Anno by Pope Pius XI, in which the principle of subsidiarity is indicated as a most important principle of social philosophy. Uh, I mention those lines because it's important for us to understand this is not just one of the principles. At the very beginning of our last episode, we sort of talked about the the compendium says you can't just pick and choose which principles you like. Mm -hmm. This principle, subsidiarity, says Catholic social teaching is the most important, the most important for social philosophy. We cannot ignore it. 
It has to be the center. And in fact, what Pope Pius XI says is that to violate the principle of subsidiarity uh, is a grave moral evil. And those of you who studied your catechism or a catechist, you know grave moral evils are part of the conditions for mortal sins. This mm -hmm. is serious stuff. Give us an example of subsidiarity. What does that look like? Sure. Well, um, let's take, for instance, there's a nonprofit group called the F uh, Family Initiative. The way it's structured is, uh, instead of simply giving, let's say, uh, a family that's struggling economically welfare monies or various things which are necessary for a social safety net, why not encourage the families to work with other families in their community mm -hmm. to help bring themselves, in a sense, out of poverty? And so what this program will do is it will bring families together who have to meet once a month. These families discuss certain goals that, that help or are connected with better economic welfare. And so uh, they'll have to uh, achieve those goals and track those goals and the progress. So those goals will include things like the, you know, one of the kids in the family gets a, an A instead of a B, or there's a good health checkup, or I got a, a minor raise at work, or I started a side business and putting in a little extra money. I put some savings aside instead of spending it on this. All these things go towards helping the family. Mm -hmm. The program will help pay the family for keeping track of the progress they make. Over time, the family begins to create habits and see virtues and see progress toward them reaching a kind of financial independence. And what's more, they learn from the families they're talking to every month on where to buy cheaper milk or these sorts of things. As a result of this program, which was first started in California, the San Francisco area, families who were at one point in time on welfare and Section 8 housing, et cetera, saw their incomes increase significantly. And What's more important is they saw their savings increase several hundred times more in just a matter of three or four years. And they were getting off of Section 8 housing. They were increasing their income. They were healthier. They were had a, a greater sense of empowerment. And there was not one single dime of state money that went to do this, to help them. Mm -hmm. So here's a program, a way of approaching the question of subsidiarity that says, these people who are clearly struggling economically have the power within themselves, given certain formation, given certain tips and, and certain encouragements and incentives, to help themselves. Right? They just need to be shown how, and this program is one of the things that helps them do that. That's subsidiarity lived out in the concrete. It's not the state coming in, so the, 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 the wrong approach may be, for the state to come in and say, you have to take this particular amount of funding, and, and if you take this funding, then you have to contracept, and if you have to contracept, then you have to provide free abortions, and we have to provide free abortions, which is what we're having now in this country. Mm -hmm. That's the wrong approach to subsidiarity, where uh, more and more the funding and the help and the aid is coming from higher levels of authority like the federal government instead of the state or the families themselves. That doesn't mean that this small local cell is somehow isolated from other cells in the surrounding area so that if there something occurs, say it's a natural disaster, yeah. doesn't mean that the surrounding communities should somehow say, well, you're doing your own thing and we're over here. There should be that outgrowth where the local community would look around and say, well, we can help you. Right. We need to help you. Yes, exactly. And that's why su subsidiarity doesn't mean 
sort of a libertarian individualism, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that because subsidiarity has to be tempered, talking about balance again, has to be tempered with solidarity. Those other communities around the community that's suffering, let's say, from the natural disaster, has a responsibility to help. And so they help in, in a very direct way. The, the, the difficulty is the danger ends up becoming when that help is separated from those communities. So, and it's not the case here in the United States, but if you had a federal government, let's say, who was giving aid in a time of natural disaster in a way that made it impossible for other local communities to help that, that needed community, that's a violation of subsidiarity as well, even though somehow there's a sense of the taxes of solidarity go to help that local group. If I am not allowed to take up my own responsibility and help my neighbor, you're violating my right to subsidiarity. On a bigger scale, an example of this might be I pay into a certain fund, whether, say, example, taxes, yeah. and it foreign aid is given to a third world country. If the government in that third world country, which has happened, which has unfortunately, happened. Yeah. retains those funds and the people there are still suffering, I can't turn my back on the people suffering because I said I gave money already. Yeah, I already did my part. This is right. this is why subsidiarity is so important because the, the money is given to that government. It should be going to the people or it could be going to local groups within that country instead of to the maybe the corrupt dictatorship in that particular country. But it's also important, again, in balancing subsidiarity and solidarity, the church is, is fine with taxes. Jesus said, go ahead and pay those mm -hmm. taxes. And Thomas Aquinas talks about how taxes are important. Um, but there has to be balance mm -hmm. in taxation as well, so that uh, my taxes help do the work of solidarity, those fill my responsibilities towards my community and, and towards the defense of my nation and, and other aspects things that are difficult for, for me as an individual uh, to try to accomplish on my own. At the same time, if I'm taxed too much, that it makes it impossible for me, for instance, to then do charitable work or to give or direct that money towards this or that effort, then it, it, that takes away some of my subsidiarity. One of the interesting things that was mentioned in Caritas and Veritate by Pope Benedict XVI was the suggestion, uh, and it's nice that the, that the Holy Father offers these, the suggestion that perhaps a certain percentage of the taxes we pay to our government could be set aside and we get to choose where those taxes go specifically to the arts or to education or to military spending or to this or that, the other thing, so that we have a, a greater sense of control over a certain amount of the taxes we pay to the federal government so that we can sort of, again, show that sense of subsidiarity and control over the money that, that God has given us. We'll return to Regnum Novum with Omar Gutierrez in just a moment. This is Dr. Anthony Lillis. And Chris McGregor. And we invite you to join us in a once-in-a-lifetime Discerning Hearts Trinitarian pilgrimage throughout the Holy Land. This will be a unique opportunity for contemplative prayer, spiritual teaching, and fellowship in one of the holiest areas on the earth. The place is touched by the lives of Jesus, Mary, and the apostles. During this time, we will also walk closely in the company of the prophet Elijah through the most miraculous moments in salvation history, our history, which would later become pages in the gospel. Along with Sister Magdalite Balduc of the Community of the Beatitudes, the community of the famous Father Jacques Philippe, we hope to lead you into a new encounter with the great mysteries of our faith and a renewal of your devotion to the Lord. Join us May 26th through June 2nd, 2020. 
Please visit DiscerningHearts.com for a full itinerary and learn more about the contemplative Discerning Hearts Trinitarian pilgrimage to the Holy Land. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, or Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Regnum Novum with Omar Gutierrez. We're called to be attentive to the cry of the poor. Yes. And not to just turn it off. If you do, it's difficult when you're in relationship with Christ not to hear that cry. Because as in Galatians 2.20 says, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Exactly. If you begin to hear the cry that he hears, because the saints will, will tell us he has no other ears but yours, no other eyes, no other hands, no other feet. Yeah. Then... When we hear that, the act of turning away from that, that's a decision that we've made. That's an act of our will. Yes, exactly. Is that Christ-like? And that's what we have to struggle with. Yes. Right. And that's, uh, that's where this relationship with Christ then leads to participation. I mean, the, it's one thing to talk about these things, mm-hmm. but the corollary to this notion of subsidiarity, which is an important thing for us as Americans to hear about, and we can talk all day long about what the federal government shouldn't do or what the international government shouldn't do or what the state government shouldn't do. But if, if they're not responsible or they shouldn't be the, the first responders to the poor or to natural disasters or whatever, then it really is our responsibility, which means guess what? We have to participate, right? Mm-hmm. We have to act. We have to step forward. We have to, we have to lay our lives down in our own sense of comfort, just as Christ did, so that we can go and, and, and help the poor and, and build those relationships. Um, it's very easy. And, and this is not a knock on, on anybody. It's very easy to write a check and send it off to help the poor. That's necessary. It's important we do that. It's mm-hmm. much more difficult, and I think we need to think about how much or how little we're doing this. It's much more difficult to to meet the poor, be in a relationship with them, and, and, and try to create those, those long-standing relationships that actually do help empower and help provide dignity to the poor and, and help do more than just meet the material needs but also the psychological and spiritual needs. Again, again, and this is why there's that interconnectedness between the different principles. The common good is not just about getting food on the table. It's about 
the spiritual, it's about the psychological, it's about the soul, it's about the spirit. So we need to address both those aspects. And in the formation of not only the individual but the family, that continual reassurance, belief, knowing that our prayers have power, mm-hmm. that so that when we hear the cries of the poor, that not only is the response, as you've said, the writing of a check, mm-hmm. which is very important, mm-hmm. but also the bringing of that in that family prayer, not only the needs yes. of the family, but the needs of the poor that are around, an awareness of the situation, the social the setting, hearing the news at night, not running from it, but listening to it, and then bringing that into the bosom of the family prayer mm-hmm. to be lifted up and offered and interceded for. Right. And that's, again, we, we've talked about this a little bit already, but again, it bears repeating because this too is part of participation. And that and that's the notion that sometimes we, we, we're convinced that participation is just about the check or just about doing. It's also about praying. And subsidiarity, as the church will say, has to start in the home. The, the family is the central cell of society, the most basic cell. Unfortunately, in our country, we have this culture, this sort of in, this rugged individualism kind of culture, where we think that the fundamental cell of society is the individual. That is not the church's teaching. And mm-hmm. I want our, my, our Catholic brothers and sisters to hear this. The church's teaching is not that the individual is the fundamental cell. It's the family. The family. So public policies and, and, and taxation policies and all these other things have to reflect back to that fundamental cell, which is the family. Mm-hmm. That's where subsidiarity starts. So while we're in the family then, we're looking at subsidiarity, we need to make sure that the families we have provide the formation necessary that fosters the sense of common good, universal destination of goods, participation, but more, more often than not, solidarity. So that in our prayer around the table at dinner time or at night when the kids are gathered, that we, we voice our concern for the poor, those who don't have enough to eat, those who are struggling in their marriages, because that's a kind of poverty as well. All those things uh, have voice and, are at the, and, and enter into our spiritual lives as a family. And as the family, out of that prayer, the response is discerned. Yes. What can we do? Yes. What are we being called to do? It may be helping out with the pantry at the parish. Mm-hmm. It may be as a family going and praying at a rosary in front of an abortion mill. Yes. It, it could take many different forms, but it's discerned within the heart of the family what they're being called to, because not every family is going to be called to respond in the same way. Right. That's absolutely true. And you have to discern that carefully. There's a danger here, too, which I think bears repeating. There are those who, and, and we look at, let's say, the life of Dorothy Day, a, a remarkable woman, deeply rooted in spirituality, who is really you know, consider, being considered a model of what the social teaching is in her service to the poor. I mean, if there's anybody who sort of exemplifies these principles of subsidiarity and solidarity and participation, it's, it's her and the common mm-hmm. good and the rest. And yet, and yet, her only daughter left the church. Now, I don't know the history of that, but I do know the testimony of those who followed in Dorothy Day's footsteps, who live out the church's teaching toward the poor in the sense of participation and work with the poor and all the rest of it, but whose children drift away from the church. And when asked, asking these, these families, you know, what, what would you have done differently? They all say, we wish we had been more vocal about who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. There's a presumption, unfortunately, in our society that uh, work for the poor can be done without the sense of Christ. That work for the poor is just what one does. It's part of a civic responsibility. That there's nothing 
greater or grander that the church is asking of us. When in reality, this this participation that the, we're being called to is unmatched, is unparalleled amongst any other group because it's coming from, it must come from Jesus. But to show people that, to let people know that, means you have to say that. Mm -hmm. You have to, part of participation is teaching right, as a parent that this is what Christ desires of us. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And it's not just a kind of a sociopolitical philosophy or ideology or even a kind of a sense of civic responsibility, but it comes from my desire to, to please him, my desire to be the good servant, good and faithful servant that he wants me to do, to be the subject to the great king of kings. That's the context, and we have to be vocal about that as we participate. There's an unfortunate adage that I've experienced in a couple dozen years of participating in church ministry mm -hmm. as a layperson, that adage that we sometimes raise church orphans mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because we want to respond. We see all those cries, whether it, it can be as the cry of a DRE who needs a catechist. Right, yeah. It's the the cry of those working to uh, in social outreach yes. or to, yeah, to uh, yeah. pro-life activities. <clears throat> right. But we get so absorbed in that that we don't hear the cry of the child who needs to have us present there that mm -hmm, day. Mm -hmm. We don't see him in that very basic unit. Right. And this is why in the last episode when we talked about discernment and, and our wealth and, and our goods and our attachment to those things. This is why I, I brought up that question of are, do the things we own, do the things we buy help us in our vocation? The same thing goes here with participation. Are those things we're participating in are those things that Christ is asking us to participate in? Or are those coming from our own wants and needs, our own insecurities, uh, our own sense of needing to feel loved and wanted in a community? Or, or, or do we think Christ wants that from us without having prayed through that directly or, or responsibly? Our participation has to be rooted in our vocation mm -hmm. because our vocation is that which will get us to heaven. And yes, this work for the poor is part of that too. If we don't, says Christ, if we don't participate in, in helping the poor and, and, and helping the little ones, right, which are him, then we could end up in the wrong place, right, in hell. But those little ones are who he reveals to us. Those little ones may in fact be our little ones, our little ones at home. So that's where we have to, we have to discern that within the context of our vocation. Yeah, I, I keep thinking of St. Francis of Assisi, who, in having that relationship with Christ, so desperately wanted to serve him that when he heard, rebuild my church, he literally yeah, started rebuilding a church. That's right. And at that moment, that's, a great enough, yeah. Yeah, that's at that moment, that's exactly what Christ needed Francis to do. Yeah, right. So that he could show him the bigger picture down the road. Right, exactly. So who knows, when in that encounter, when you encounter Christ mm -hmm. in that prayer, what is it he's showing you? And sometimes we look at the big picture. I got to go solve all the problems and solve the big picture. Right. Maybe he'll teach you as he did Francis and just that one brick at a time. That's and then right. all of a sudden, <laughs> then the one person came to him. That's right. And then another person and then came another to him person. And he and encountered. Our good friend, Monsignor Essef, has said mm -hmm. before that when we're talking about you know, living the church's teaching out, here's a man who knew Mother Teresa and was a spiritual director, et cetera. This man knows Right. Mm -hmm. He said oftentimes the most difficult participation in subsidiarity is with members of our own family. 
Start there, right? Start there in participation. Maybe that's where your vocation is to be a good sister or brother or aunt or uncle or whatever it might be. Start there. Repair those wounds. Participate in the social teaching by, by doing, by doing that kind of love. Because part of what the church teaches is that if, I mean, it's in scripture. If we have something against our brother, we cannot possibly bring up a worthy sacrifice. So if you think you're sacrificing yourself by serving the poor, working at the kitchen, doing whatever it is you're doing, uh, and you have this animus towards a member of your own family, that sullies the work you're doing for the poor because you're holding back part of your heart. Your ability to love is being hampered by this animus, this, this, this thing is pulling back. And so part of this principle of subsidiarity and participation is really looking interiorly to find out where are those th- things that are making it hard for you to love those closest to you. And also to remember that the, the American definition of the family isn't necessarily what the human family is designed to be. And I <laughs> think we've point. experienced that, Omar, when you and I were in Guatemala right. uh, serving in mission work, that the family that comes to pray together includes the grandparents. Yeah. It may include the aunts and, and the uncles as well and the cousins. It's it, The family is not just mom and dad and kids, and then kids are 18 and they're gone. Yeah. The family continues to gather and to pray. Where two or more are gathered, he's there. He's in that in the heart of that, yeah. maybe we need to somehow bring together that that sense of what family is, because otherwise we're in isolation. Exactly. Again, this is we're going back to balance. Subsidiarity doesn't mean we sort of shut ourselves off from the rest of society. We're only comfortable amongst within within ourselves. Subsidiarity and solidarity mean that we participate in a wider sphere. <laughs> that we include our extended family. I was at a retreat once where um, newly married still, and, and we had just one child, maybe another one on the way, and we were getting invitations from various other families and neighbors, and we being felt like we were pulled in different directions, and I, and I wanted to just sort of come in on ourselves, no, I want my family, and that's where my purpose is, and that's where I want to be. And this retreat director told me, he goes, you need to expand your definition of family. And I think he was, I didn't like hearing it at the time, but he was absolutely right. I do, and I did, and I, and I, I remember that even to this day, uh, precisely because we have this tendency in our country to want to sort of, I think even just naturally, just to kind of come in on ourselves and stay with what's comfortable, instead of allowing ourselves in subsidiarity and solidarity to make the sacrificial uh, act and go outside and participate in the lives of others. And anybody who has small children, too, when you do come together to pray over very concretely what will our response be, they have a way of breaking that us open. Yeah, that's right. Very true. They have a a way of challenging us to do the more, the magis. Yeah, yeah. And they'll, why can't we do this, Mommy? Why can't we, shouldn't we give them this? Shouldn't we go there? How hard it is for the parent sometimes. I mean, think about that. Before you say no, could that be the voice of Christ in them? You know, just kind of trying to to eke out a little bit more, a little bit more magis from us. That's right. That's how I found, and we've talked about this about before, I think, is that's oftentimes how our Lord speaks to us is, again, in the context of vocation, speaking to us by those he's placed in our lives. Our children are a gift to us. They are from God, right? So naturally God's going to use them to speak to us and speak to us of any number of things, sometimes some sad truths, but some joyful truths and some challenging truths and some great invitations to reach out a little bit more. Go to My own son, for instance, wanted to go to Mass. So 
every day. So, you know, you get up extra early and, and go to mass because that's what was coming from him and his heart. So these are invitations that we, we, we want from, from God. And so we should be open to those invitations that come from our friends, our family, uh, our neighbors, uh, those in our parish with whom we've begun to build relationships. But those invitations can't come if we don't build relationships, if we're not aware and work towards those relationships. They may not have even realized they've left. Yes, exactly. No, I, I know people who whose own parents never practiced a single uh, day of their faith at all, but because of the memories of a grandparent taking them to Mass or praying the rosary or uh, passing on prayer cards or whatever it might be, because of that, those those associations with their grandparent, uh, when time came many years down the road for them to hear uh, the word from some other Catholic or to know a Catholic, they were that much more open uh, because they associated the faith with their kindly grandmother or grandfather who took care of them, and, and and they thought it was important. So maybe this is time for me to maybe think about this more clearly. Um, those things do make a difference. And so, yeah, I would encourage all grandparents to do precisely that. Any final thoughts? The principle of subsidiarity is one that gets bandied about a lot, and, and certainly in, within the realm of politics, it's, it's certainly bandied out about. But what I like about our conversation is that we've sort of rooted it in our daily lives and how it manifests itself in, in the everyday. And so as we're looking at our day and how we participate and, and how we engage in solidarity and engage in subsidiarity, where are those relationships in our lives that are wounded, uh, that are maybe keeping us from being able to participate in our families, in our extended families, in our neighborhoods? Where are those wounds in our relationships with family in particular? What's God asking us f- from us? Sometimes those wounds are, are wounds that are, are, uh, we, we can't do much about right now. The other person simply closed off, and there's not much we can do for them but to pray. But at least let's pray. Right? So I would ask that as we're discerning how to live out subsidiarity and solidarity and participation, maybe to start thinking about where those wounds are. And in this chapter, chapter 4, closes off part 1 of the compendium. In part 2, we start to look at more specific areas of, of, of human living. And the very first area we'll talk about, it will be family. Uh, so before we get to that, where are those aspects in our lives that are, are wounded? Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Omar. You're welcome, Chris. You've been listening to Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts, I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Regnum Novum, bringing forth the new evangelization through Catholic social teaching with Deacon Omar Gutierrez.